Lockdown Diaries, Chapter 6 Two months ago, I was packing for what I thought was going to be a short visit to the Arab city of Dubai, and I threw bird songs into my luggage. Let me explain. This is a recorded collection of birds contained in a small motion-activated box that you can use to bring some sound into your apartment. With Dubai being all metal and glass, I thought this memento of nature could soften the vibe. What I didn't anticipate at the time was that I would be quarantined in this Dubai hotel room for weeks. And what I didn't anticipate is that I would never actually have to turn on this bird box. Instead, every morning I've woken up to the real thing. A parade of birds of all colors and sizes that land on the balcony, soar across the windows, peer in, and sing to announce each day's beginning. In the last few weeks, as the lockdown has eased, Dubai's less natural sounds have returned. Construction cranes, Bentleys, and the occasional airplane have joined the soundscape once more. But there's one additional sound here I did not expect to hear in the 21st century. Cannon fire. This is Dubai's Ramadan cannon. It's fired at sunset every night during this holy month to announce the end of the day's fast. These last few weeks of the lockdown have overlapped with this most sacred time in the Muslim calendar. As you probably know, this is the time when observant Muslims forego eating, drinking, and general pettiness from sunrise to sunset in favor of spiritual elevation. But this year, aside from the canon, public Ramadan here is canceled. Mosques are closed, gatherings banned, Mecca itself is shut down. And so Ramadan has returned to its origins, a month of remembrance, reflection, and even revelation. A lot has been said and written about the political, economic, and even artistic impact of the coronavirus pandemic. But what about the spiritual dimension of this time? What lessons have we learned? How do we wish to live and how do we wish to treat one another? What defines a just society? And which values will we take with us through this pandemic portal? Ours is not the first generation to face such a crisis, and it will certainly not be the last. This sixth chapter of Lockdown Diaries is a conversation about history, faith, and the poetry that reminds us that humanity has persevered through ages of darkness. It reminds me actually of a couplet by a 14th century poet called Sadi, who was a Persian poet, who wrote that, you know, one year when the plague came to Damascus, the lovers forgot all about what love is. So, you know, there's a very old tradition also of literature that um, helps us think through this moment. People have gone through this before, they've written about it, they've captured the existential angst. Ali Khan Mahmudabad is a professor of Islamic history, a political scientist and a philosopher. He's also one of my favorite poets and a true Renaissance mind fluent in French, Arabic, Persian, Avadi, Urdu, 
It's kind of unbearable. We met in India four years ago, became friends, and when I called Ali at home recently during the lockdown, it was unbelievable just how many birds near him were audible over our simple iPhone connection. So Ali, welcome. Thank you, Bilal. So tell me a little bit about where you are and where we're hearing you right now. So I'm uh, sitting outside next to the garden uh, in Lucknow, which is the capital of India's largest state. Uh, almost 230 million people live in the state. And I'm fortunate because we have a rather large garden and the birds and the animals have all come out uh, because of the lack of traffic and human interruption. So you can probably hear this lovely bird song. There's a gulmohar tree near me. There's an amaltas tree near me. There's a, there's a mango tree some palms and you know spring is on its way out of course it's beginning to get hot so you know uh, surrounded by nature and being able to sit uh, and just think about nothing really you know you know Ali in your in your sort of day job you're also a in your day job you're a professor and an academic and you're a political scientist and mm. a historian and um, this is particularly uh, exciting bird behind you what is that so so it's quite interesting right in front of me there's a mongoose who's come and just sitting there and scratching itself uh and there are a bunch of birds who've surrounded it and are, are trying to sort of pick a fight with it but are of course maintaining a distance <laughs> and now they've all gone <laughs> hello yeah i'm just listening to it it's very it, yeah. it's hilarious and amazing um, <laughs> um. You know, you mentioned the um, the kind of poetry that was written in Damascus during the plague in the 14th century. And um, tell me a little bit about how kind of your historian hat sort of sits today. And I mean, obviously, we've had periods like this before, and there are, are precedents for this kind of experiences in society. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, one of the first questions I, I think I, that I remember asking is, you know, what happen- What has happened to societies? What are the questions that have emerged when plagues have happened? What are the changes often that take place after a plague? And what's very interesting that, you know, in England, for instance, after the Black Death, the plague actually laid the seeds in a way for the eventual demise of feudalism because serfs, were able then to travel freely between estates. It led to a larger movement, uh, migration of, uh, of labor, uh, and so on. So this is just an example. And I think this is something that is in our highly connected, uh, globalized world today. I think the changes are probably going to be even starker. My only fear, of course, is that if there is change possible, it will largely be contingent on how long this period lasts. Because I think if this period of the lockdown across the world doesn't last for that long, then most governments will probably try to inject capital into the markets, into businesses, to try and get them to revive, and we'll probably go back to where we were. But I think this is potentially a radical moment also, and it really depends on you and I as citizens of various countries and what we demand of our systems and our politicians because this can be an inflection point and you have to remember that you know whether it's social cultural economic political change or even i would say religious change often these happen at times of great distress for example marx when he's writing the communist manifesto when he's thinking about capital and labor and surplus value he's doing this at a time when there is a kind of crisis 
in the uh, industrializing cities of Europe. And similarly, if you go back in history, you know, various religions have emerged at times when they have basically taken a, a stance against the status quo. You know, in, in that sense, most religions are, are ruptures, they're radical breaks from the past, whether it's Islam, whether it's Christianity, and so on. So, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's saying no, and I think that's the thing that we really need to learn how to say, and I think something we can all reflect on as we go through this age of COVID, if we were to call it that, is to think about the things we have to say no to. For, for me personally, one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, frankly, the absolutely mindless consumerism that drives much of the world processes, you know. I mean, at the moment, we've been reduced to basically things which are our human needs. Desires are a completely separate thing in terms of material desire. But we need to look at building a more sustainable world. Do we need, for example, once this age of COVID is over, do governments globally need to think about you know, regular lockdowns where all kinds of vehicular transport, whether it's planes, trains, cars, are shut down. So we let the earth breathe a little because, of course, one of the few positive things that has emerged from this crisis is the fact that uh, nature is asserting itself now that we, uh, the human beings, are, are, are not there to disrupt it. You know, Ali, as you were speaking, I was thinking about... Um the religious and spiritual dimension to this as well, because you are you're a historian of Islam as well, and and I guess one of the things that I find fascinating about what you've just said about our relationship with consumption, the kind of way we've been living, you know, one of the big strains in Islamic sort of teachings and I suppose Islamic orthodoxy in general has always been a very ambivalent, if not you know, antagonistic relationship toward worldly possessions, you know, toward the idea of being too consumed and too concerned with your life in this world. So materialism, and in a lot of ways, I think that's one of the things that pits kind of traditional cultures, pits them against the kind of modern world, which is very much built on consumption, on projection of self through material goods, status, class, all of those kinds of things that are such a, we take them now so much for granted. But I've always found that that kind of antagonistic relationship or perhaps the warning that comes out of Islamic teachings and culture more generally about the dunya, you know, the obsession with the worldliness, the world, the things that are on this world. I want to ask you about that and I want to ask you if that's something that you've been thinking about or if that's what you're referring to when you talk about sort of the spiritual possibility in this moment as well. So I think, you know, one of the things that I was keenly aware of for various reasons before this age of COVID and which I think people are becoming more and more aware of now is their notion of temporality, in other words, time, uh, spending time with themselves, spending time with their families. You know, in a sense, there has been a reorientation. I think um, people in most cities, um, people have what maybe breakfast together dinner together and the rest of the day is uh, basically spent chasing after dunya now of course this is not to say that this is uh, anyone's fault of course we have built a system uh, that uses debt in order to ensnare people into sort of living these lives and so it's a much wider problem than just individual choice but anyway this is this is how society has been structured and i think this sudden freeze where we are now 
spending time with uh, loved ones, with family, with children perhaps, uh, and even alone, you know. Uh, I think the Japanese have a word, boketto, if I'm not mispronouncing it, which is, you know, not quite the idea of daydreaming, but the idea of actually doing nothing, you know, um, uh, including not thinking. You know, I think we have, the entire world as we have built it, takes for granted that we are concerned about some aspect of the material all the time, whether it's in terms of productivity, whether it's in terms of buying something and desire, whether it's in terms of planning for the future. Uh, I mean, the very idea of the future is a question mark at the moment. Of course, I think we'll overcome this and so on and so forth. But because people are confronted with the possibility of death, it forces you to renegotiate and reconfigure fundamental notions about life. In, in a sense, uh, philosophically speaking, this is the time to actually talk about, you know, philosophy in terms of happiness. What is it that makes us happy? What is the common good? Is there a way to measure happiness? I think these were questions we were largely avoiding even talking about because it was a rat race. Um, and the assumption was that the more you have in terms of uh, the material world, uh, the happier you are, which is clearly not the case. And then, of course, you know, in the Quran it says, what is this world, what is this dunya except for uh, a few days of play? You know, it's, uh, uh, Imam Ali says, I, you know, I care uh, less about the dunya than a, a, the sneeze of a goat. Um, so I think this is, a, again, a moment to reflect perhaps on self as well. You know, in Sufism there's a concept called khalwat, which is a kind of retreat because, of course, as you know, in Islam, uh, an absolute retreat from the world, from the material world, is discouraged. What is uh, encouraged is not to chase the material world, but to... So, you know, it's a balance of, as you know, deen and dunya, religion and the world. But uh, the Sufis have this concept of khalwat, which is a kind of retreat uh, where you can introspect, you can think, you can think about your relation to the world, to the religion... Uh, to God, to the cosmos, to society. And I think, you know, this is, a, in a way, it's a forced khalwat for a lot of people. So, in, in a sense, the possibilities are multiple, which are born out of this moment. Well, you know, for me, I, as someone who normally covers the arts and writes about culture and, and film, music, I think one of the things that I find interesting about this moment, too, is that in being forced into this kind of Khalwat, as you say, into this kind of retreat. I also think it forces us to pay attention in a different way as well, because I think, you know, there's skimming and then there's reading, there's kind of scanning and then there's looking. I, I, I want to know about what you think about that and, and how this can be a time that can draw us toward the arts as more than really just um, embellishment in our life, but as, as nourishment. Mm. So I think, you know, for me... Um what has been interesting here, because of course, in many parts of the Muslim world, as of course in other parts of the world, poetry has often been a very interesting, it has not just been a part of literature, but it is a cultural tradition, a part of the arts that is very much alive. And I see people, you know, as I always love to say, you probably remember this from when we used to meet in Delhi, um, poetry is really everyday philosophy, poetry done well, of course, you know, whether it's Islamic history, uh, or indeed other civilizations, other cultures, poetry often fulfills the role uh, that philosophy ideally should be in terms of making us confront questions about our um, ourselves, about our relationships with each other, 
questions of principles and values that drive us. So, you know, I think there will probably be a lot of creativity that emerges. And I'm sure people are being creative wherever they are in the khalwats that they are. I know that, for example, in Kashmir, as you know, a place which is um, sadly used to enforced lockdowns, military lockdowns, there's a lot of art that often emerges from conflict areas or, or places which have been in some kind of distress. So in Kashmir already I was seeing on Instagram, for instance, there are people who are thinking and writing about this situation. But I think there will be, post the age of COVID, an effervescence of the arts and culture. And I just hope that it is meaningful and it is not just, you know, it's, um, again, breaks from what, in my very humble opinion, I think has been one of the perfidies that has emerged and at least South Asia, where the denizens and the doyens of art and culture have got inextricably wrapped up with the material world and with art as something of value, as in monetary value, art as something that does not lead us towards knowledge or beauty or appreciation of higher truths, but uh, some kind of currency. So I hope, again, this is a moment to rethink a lot of those questions also. Well, you know, the other thing about poetry is that, as you said, taking away the kind of commercial element, in some ways a poem can also be um, one of the most inexpensive forms of true cultural yep. uh, gift-giving as well, because if delivered by someone who's thoughtful and who has a great voice, it can be a very uh, cost-effective means of achieving the kind of high that one receives from great art. So on that note, I wanted to ask mm -hmm. if there was something you could share or gift to us who are listening uh, that's been on your mind, something related to the themes that we've been talking about. Uh-huh. Uh... So one of the things that I've been thinking about is um, is home uh, and the concept of home. Um, and, you know, of course, at, at this moment, there's still a lot, large number of people in the world whose homes have been destroyed because of conflict or because they've had to move and so on. So there's this uh, couplet by my grandfather, which is both, in a sense, tragic as well as full of hope. Uh, this is, of course, the genius of poetry, that it, it is able to simultaneously operate in many registers. So he says, Nashayman ke liye tinke chununga phir gulista mein Jala hai aashiyan ab aaj se fursat hi fursat hai So he says, you know, my nest, and it's it's funny, I mean, this poem, maybe unconsciously it has, it has come to my mind just now because of the birds. Uh, because, of course, uh, it is a bird saying that my nest has been burnt to a cinder in the garden. But I will gather twigs one by one uh, once more in order to build a nest uh, again. Nashayman ke liye tinke chununga. I will gather twigs in order to rebuild my nest once more because my home has been burnt and all I have is free time. Uh, that's a literal translation of the verse. So in a, in a ways it captures many of the plights and predicaments that we are all in with a lot of time on our hands, uh, our homes perhaps under threat by this invisible disease, people suffering, uh, who we cannot really help because we're all self-isolating, but nonetheless are trying to. So um, I think this is, this is the poem that came to my mind just now while speaking.
But an, a note of hope, but also of rebuilding from what was destroyed. Of rebuilding, you know. I mean, it's, there's a kind of forlorn hope because it leaves the question open as to whether you have the energy and the ability to rebuild or whether this spare time is something that you will just spend thinking about that which has been lost. Uh, so, you know, of course, any poem can be read in many ways. And I suppose when one is listening to poetry, whatever one's inner state is and emotional state is, in a sense, that provides a lens through which people understand. So the same poem can be one of hope for one person and full of tragedy for someone else, uh, nostalgia for yet someone. So, you know, it, 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 I think it depends on the emotional state of whoever is listening. Ali, thank you so much for sharing your Lucknavi lockdown diaries with us. It's been wonderful to to listen to birds with you. And, and while it sounds very precious, I think that you've uh, drawn our attention to the gifts of attention, of uh, of just being more present, I think. Mm, and reflection, I hope. I hope we can all reflect more. But thank you for having me, uh, Bilal. And uh, I leave you with a poem by Ahmed Faraz, which says, a couplet, which says, Dhund ujre hue logon mein wafa ke moti ye khazane tujhe mumkin hai kharabo mein mile. So look for the pearls of loyalty amongst those who are dispossessed, for you will find them in the ruins that are all around us. Uh, these treasures you will find in the ruins that are all around us. So thank you again. It was wonderful talking, and uh, I look forward to hearing the other episodes of Lockdown Diaries. Thank you, and Khudafiz uh, for now. Khudafiz, Khudafiz. Historian, philosopher, and poet Ali Khan Mahmoudabad. His latest book is Poetry of Belonging. Um, Ali, just let your... Uh, I just want to... I'm not going to say anything for, for about 30 seconds so we can hear just some of the birds in the back just record them, if you don't mind. <laughs> of course. You know, look at how, how little we spend, I mean, even listening over a phone line, how little time we spend paying attention to this. No, I completely agree. I mean, you know, just before, in fact, there's a beautiful woodpecker that is just flying above me. And it's quite amazing because there's this tree with reddish flowers and uh, the, the very gnarly branches. And it's just kind of, it darted out of this tree, this kind of ball of red. And it's gone and sat on a wall and is... Uh, looking around and now is is um, trying to hit the wall with its beak. It's very very beautiful. You just forget to take pleasure from these little things. Thank you for being part of these lockdown diaries. It has been an honor to share this time with you. Our music was a gift from singer Zabe Bungash. I'm Bilal Qureshi. This has been a B-Sides production.